Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of IndyCast. My name is Abhishek and joining me on the call once again is uh, the economist John Fashman from Atlanta who for the past many, many months has had many sleepless nights because he's been covering the US elections for the paper. He's been on the road and uh, we are here to talk about that experience. Hi, John. Welcome back. Hi, Abhishek. Thank you for having me back. Thank you. How many frequent flyer miles have you notched up and how many cities did you cover in the run-up to this and how long have you been on the road, John? Oh, frequent flyer <laughs> miles. I'm doing all right, actually. I have a nice bank of them. I have some nice hotel points as well. And how many nights? I don't know exactly, but enough. A lot. What are some of the craziest deadlines that you've had? Because for listeners who feel that The Economist is just a weekly magazine or newspaper, as they call it, it's not quite the case anymore because there are blogs. And then, John, you do live blogging. You have blog posts coming up, not just for the American elections, but for your regular reporting and opinion pieces, too. And then you've got to file a story almost every week because it's the election time, obviously. So you've been writing quite a bit, as much as a journalist would for a newspaper. And then, of course, you've got to plug in your opinion, too, because The Economist is opinionated in all matters. So take us through a few crazy deadlines while you were at it. Well, it wasn't too bad. The last week was pretty intense. On Saturday, I flew down and caught an Obama rally in South Florida and filed a blog post from the rally and then got in my car and drove several hundred miles up to mid-Florida and caught a Romney rally that morning. I filed a blog post that afternoon. That was Sunday. I came home. I filed another post on Monday, and then Tuesday was the election, so I was live blogging. And then I filed a piece on uh, on state and local elections at about 4 o'clock that morning and then got up the next morning and, and, and wrote one more and then had a nice sleep Wednesday night. And what performance-enhancing drugs were you on all this time? I, I was high on life. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, a little bit coffee. You know, I'm not, I have an advantage. I've been a lifelong insomniac, so I don't really get much sleep on a normal night and I can function pretty well without much sleep. But I did have a good long rest after it was over. Right, I'm sure well-deserved one too. But tell me, John, how do you prepare for such an event as a journalist? It comes once in four years. It's the greatest spectacle on earth in terms of politics. And it's also a privilege, but it comes with such back-breaking work that you might... Did, did it ever feel you just want to throw it all off for a moment? It's just too much of it? No, I never felt that. For the entire time, I thought it was a tremendous privilege to get to see that kind of democracy close up. You know, it actually... It's very easy, I think, to get cynical about the process if your principal interaction with election news is through papers and negative TV ads. But at the end of the election, I saw Obama's rally in Florida and Romney's in Florida, and it was filled with thousands and thousands of people who had spent time and a considerable amount of effort to come to these rallies and hear the candidates speak, and I, I thought it was very inspiring. And as, as for the preparation question, I started covering the Republican primary back in the summer of 2011. So I've spent about 15 months off and on covering the election. And so the preparation really comes with being involved in it. The stories sort of build on themselves. And so as you go on, you sort of craft a narrative of how the process has gone. And then it all ends in one day and you're back to having to think of new stories. And that, that part is kind of tough. For a while, you know, especially in the last few months, you're essentially covering the unfolding of the campaign. And then that ends and uh, and there's a big void. 
Yes, but you spoke a little something about narratives. How do you craft them? So when you are at a rally and running against such stringent timelines to publish stuff online and also for the paper, do you form paragraphs in your head? Do you edit in your mind or do you sit with a laptop with an open page and start hammering away? Because you're running against time and you've got to have your wits about yourself all the time. So what is your process of writing and dispatching stuff? As I watch, I'll jot down observations here and there as they speak, if the crowd responds in a particularly interesting way. If I have an interesting conversation on the way into a rally, I'll get all that written down. I don't really like to write until after the event has ended, uh, just because I like to have the whole story as it has unfolded. And I think there's a danger if you're writing while something is happening, you'll miss something important. And it may also prejudice how you get information. So I'll take small notes as I'm watching and listening, but then I won't write up the whole thing until the very end. And as an American, did it come in the way or did it help? Because you will have your personal biases too. As an American, you will be voting yourself. But as a journalist, did that come in the way? Well, I hope not. I don't mind telling you. I did vote, but I'm an independent. I'm not a partisan in general. And I tried to be as fair as I could to both sides. You know, I think there may be an advantage that colleagues of mine who are from out of the U.S. have, but I hope that's not the case. I hope that's not the case. I think every worthwhile journalist has to work very, very hard to police his own opinions and to prevent them from coloring what he's writing about. You know, otherwise you turn into basically a PR from one of the campaigns and then your, your, your work has much less value. Absolutely. Did it help then that you also write for a British uh, organization, a British newspaper, British magazine? Did that help in a way because you have editors who might bring another perspective because they are from another country, maybe? I'm just uh, hitting it in, in the dark. So does it help? Does it not? Well, I don't know if, if the fact that The Economist was British helped, but the fact that The Economist was The Economist helped immensely because, first of all, you're allowed to get into issues. I mean, compared to a lot of other Political journalism, I think The Economist is much, much better at being issue-focused rather than personality-focused. And I also happen to have a great couple of editors, both the editor of the U.S. section and the editor of my blog, who will push back on what they see as weak arguments, who will happily tell me where they think I was sliding or what they think I could have done better. So I don't think it's the fact that The Economist is British that's the help. It's the fact that The Economist is the institution that it is that helps. Nicely put. And while, while you were on the road, if you can dig back to your all the events that you went to, although the two people, they are vying for the best job in the world, they are human at the end of the day. So did you find anything peculiar about the two men, any slips on the campaign trail? Because, for instance, George W. Bush was known for a lot of goofs while he was around. So did you see anything interesting which made the candidates feel human? I did. You know, at the end of it, that last rally in Florida where I saw Obama, just I think it was two or three days before Election Day, I wasn't sitting terribly close to him, but I could tell he was exhausted and he sounded very hoarse. You know, I saw him several times on the trail. There was a time sort of in the late summer where he seemed a little bit uptight and like he wasn't enjoying himself. And I think the last couple of times I saw him, he really did seem to have hit his stride. And so I think that sort of ennui exists even for politicians who, say, who are on the road for that much time and whose job it is to perform. I, I think the same was true of Romney. I mean, he's a fairly stiff person in how he interacts with people. But that last rally I saw in Florida, he was funny. He was very loose. He set off the crowd very well. I think they both finished very strongly. But in the end, when it came down to picking a candidate, and The Economist is known for doing this every four years, every elections, you pick 
Obama over Romney. And unlike the last time where it was an overwhelming endorsement, this time it was more of a limp one because it was as if he was saying that we do not have a strong enough opposition, so let's go for Obama. It's like the lesser devil. Would that be right? Or am I overstating it? Yeah, I think that was more or less the argument that John made in that in that editorial. I think it was a very soundly argued, very thoughtful piece. And it reminds you that, you know, in 2008, there was a tremendous sense of optimism. Obama was a very different president. His campaign had really tapped into a wonderful energy. And that wasn't the case in 2012. It was much more of a slog. So I think the editorial in part reflected the changed circumstances. It reflected the fact that Obama was now a, had a record to defend. He wasn't the challenger. But the economy didn't do that well under him, did it? Uh, of course, you do mention that it could have been far worse it could have been a lot worse is what the argument is of people who support him. But, you know, a president, when he is up for re-election, his report card matters more than what he says in the campaign. Well, I think there are a couple of ways to answer that. I think the first one is the president does have some power over the economy, but not as much as either he thinks or his campaign lets people think. I think that there are a lot of factors driving what happens in the economy. I also think that the argument that it could have been worse is, has the virtue of being of being largely true. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a huge meltdown in 2008, and the economy took a huge dip, but under Obama's watch, the stock market has come roaring back, private sector hiring is up, unemployment is much too high, and we'd like the housing market to be healthier, but I think the housing market has probably hit bottom. So in the end, the argument that things are going in the right direction ended up swaying a lot of people. And it didn't help that Romney came from a background where he had made a lot of money. The common theme was that Romney doesn't know what it is to connect with the masses. And you recently wrote a briefing, a long article in The Economist about the percentage of people below the poverty line. It's about 15% or so, and it's been increasing many-fold over the past few years. So to connect with the common man was more important than anything else. So is it because people hated Romney a little more than they liked Obama, and that's why they went with him? Well, I don't know that Romney really inspired hatred. I know that, you know... You're right. I think I, I used I, too, too harsh a word, but maybe people didn't probably fancy him as much as they liked Obama here in the end then. Well, look, as a matter of personality, he happens to be a bit stiff. He doesn't have that ability to connect with a crowd that Obama has. But not every president had. George H.W. Bush was quite stiff and awkward. You know, Richard Nixon was not really warm and fuzzy. So I don't think that's necessarily a killing quality. I think the problem was that over the summer, the Obama campaign defined his tenure at Bain Capital in such a relentlessly negative way. And for whatever reason, the Romney campaign decided not to respond to it then. I think their strategy was, we'll save our money over the summer, no one's paying attention, and then we'll spend more at the end when it matters. And it turns out that 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 does not appear to have been true. Those early characterizations of Romney, fair or not, and I think largely not, were extremely effective at painting him as an out-of-touch plutocrat, and he never really got over that. To compare this with India, which is the world's largest democracy, where Mm -hmm. uh, politicians go out there and campaign and take shots at their opposition, in India, there is this cliche that politicians are known only for their promises. When they come to office, they forget all about it. But I don't think that is quite the case in the U.S. How does it work? How important is it for the probable candidates to know what they are talking about? Because in the end, they might have to just do it. How, How true is it? And how much of it does actually get done. Well, I mean, politicians are really well known for breaking promises. I think people, you know, expect that. On the other hand, it can be catastrophic. I think you, you remember back in, in, in 1988, George H.W. Bush ran for president promising that he would not raise taxes, and he did raise taxes. And that kind of blatant sort of reneging on a promise 
is hard to get over. But I think people understand that they hear very rosy scenarios from politicians on the stump and that reality has its own way of interfering with plans, however nice they sound. Was it the same person who said, read my lips, no new taxes? I had read this long back and it went viral or everyone started quoting him? Yes, yes, that was in 1998. I think it was during a debate. People were saying he was going to have to raise taxes and he said, read my lips, no new taxes, and then raised taxes in 91 and that, you know, that killed him. And coming to debates, last few questions, John, is debates, the way they happen in the U.S. are it's like an X-ray machine. Everybody is there to take a look at it and how the presidents are performing and everybody writes about it. How was the first televised debate? Uh, everyone said that Romney got the better of Obama and that the blogosphere said that he wasn't in his element. How important are these debates in the whole equation and how much can they swing in the favor of the candidate? Well, I think there are two things about that first debate. The first is that sitting presidents historically perform quite badly in their first presidential debate. I think that the challenger is geared up. He's had a lot of time to prepare. It's a nicer position to be a challenger because you don't have a record to defend. You just have promises of how things will be when you're elected. And then as the president, you have less time to prepare, you're governing, and you're a little rusty. And in Romney's case, he is a magnificent debater, and he had been through, you know, what, 11 or 12 debates during the Republican primary. So traditionally, it's a good position for a challenger to be in that first debate. Having said that, Obama's performance in that first debate was incredibly bad. I mean, even by the standards of sitting presidents, it was terrible. He seemed lazy. He seemed aloof. He seemed like he didn't want to be there. And he recovered. He turned in two very strong performances after that. But his first one was terrible. And you could see it did move the polls a lot very quickly. He had to play some real catch-up in the end. And I think the downside of Obama's the campaigns relentlessly characterizing him as this out-of-touch rich guy in the summer is that you have voters tuning in for the first time and they expect to see some kind of monster. And what they see is actually what Romney was, is a very decent, thoughtful, kindly-seeming man. And that means he sort of beat the expectations for what people expected and looked good by way of comparison to how he had been characterized. In the in the end, of course, the verdict was out and Obama won. But if you go back to the debates, and I haven't seen them, a little bit that I know is from watching a few YouTube videos, is that the format or the setting has changed where the candidates would sit on, on stools or stand next to rostrums and now they sit on a chair across a moderator. But I say that the perception of what these candidates talk matters more than what they say in the end. Apparently, back in the days when the first televised debate happened between JFK and Nixon, people who listened to it on the radio thought that Nixon did well and those who saw it on TV thought that JFK did well because JFK was all handsome and there was a five o'clock shadow on, on Nixon and he was always sweating and he, was, he would take his handkerchief and wipe off his brow all the time. But in the end, the content didn't matter as much as how confident they were while they were saying it. And some say that that swung it for JFK as compared to Nixon. So in the end, it comes down to the war of words, does it? American elections. I do not want to make it sound too elementary or too trivial, but is it such an important part of the campaign, those debates, that it can swing it to you and that's why presidents take it so seriously? Well, I don't know that it can swing it. I don't know that there has been a swing as dramatic. That Kennedy-Nixon debate was extremely dramatic in the effect that perception had. You know, Nixon, as you say, was sweaty, was haggard, had a five o'clock shadow. Kennedy looked very polished. At this point, there isn't going to be another gap in appearance that dramatic. And there wasn't one this year. You know, both Romney and Obama are very 
handsome, wore nice suits, well-turned-out, expert performances in front of the camera. And I think that the debates are important events for people to see how politicians respond to questions and to see how they interact. The fact is that the ultimate results sort of reflected where the polls were in June or July, and there is a little rise for Obama through August and September and then a dip after that first debate. But in the end, you know, I think you can make the argument that if the election had been taken place before the debates had happened, the result would have been largely the same. And last couple of questions, how did you celebrate when it all got done? Not because the president got elected, but because you could take a breather and that you could celebrate everything that you brought to all the readers. Uh, well, I celebrated. I took that weekend after the election, I took it off and then I spent one full day doing nothing but cooking, which I love to do, and then one full day doing nothing but hiking with my kids, which I also love to do. So I just, it, was a, it was a family reconnection weekend, which was great. Amazing. And would you want to do this all over again, given a chance sometime in your life? Given the chance again, I would do it in a, in a heartbeat. It was exhausting, but it was, like I said, it was such a privilege. It was a lot of fun. It was inspiring, and, and I would do it again in a second. Where do you get the news from, John? I mean, we get the news from all the journalists, but where do you get your news from? You can't be everywhere at the same time. So how do you track everything? How much do you have to read? I read a lot. I also talk to everyone I can talk to all the time in any situation. You know, I don't know, you've probably been in a plane ride or a train ride and you've been sitting next to some jerk who wouldn't stop talking to you even though you wanted to read. Well, I'm that jerk. I'll talk to anyone about anything. And so you sort of create this list of people who contact you, things you're thinking about, and you keep a bunch of threads going. And, and with luck, a lot of them, some of them will pan out. And do you introduce yourself as a journalist then? Or do you just talk, chat? I just talk and chat, and eventually if we get around discussing what we do, I'll tell them or they'll ask. But I just, it's one of the great things about this job. I really, I really just enjoy talking to people. And I think if I was in a different job, I would still talk to strangers as much as I do. But in this job, I usually get some professional benefits out of it. I think you've, you've genuinely enjoyed doing all of this. And it's great, great. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure.